Hey there, Dragonfly Nation. This is the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Caleb Musgrave, and this is episode 112 of the podcast, and this episode is called The Knife Revisited. To know the landscape is to open up a door, to feel deeper connected than you've ever felt before. We know that you will love this podcast so shut your mouth and listen to canadian bushcraft so i think in part of why this episode was inspired was i've been working on a few different projects over the last few days and throughout those projects i was recording myself because we're doing these videos and these TikToks and these posts for Instagram and everything else. And of course, we have Dragonfly knives, or sorry, D-Fly 4.5 knives, designed by me, manufactured by Tops Knives, an amazing knife company. If you're looking for good quality American-made knives, Tops Knives all the way. This is not an endorsement that's paid for. This is just me because I love their product, and that's why we design knives with them. I design knives with them. And of course... We've got some in stock right now, and so I'm trying to promote them and to make sure I'm using the knife whenever possible in these videos. And I'm catching myself using the knife more than I usually would for certain projects. And I started thinking about all these conversations I've had over the years about knives and all my considerations about what I look for in a knife over the years. And the design is still my favorite design. It's not evolving from that. It's in the sense of it's not evolving for me disliking the knife by any means. It's more about me noticing that I don't need to use a knife as often as I am in these recordings. And when I'm demonstrating for classes, I often use the knife to show the steps of what I'm doing and all these little nicks and knocks and all these things that I'm doing. And I started to think about how I grew up learning bushcraft and survival skills and ancestral knowledges and all that kind of stuff. And I've kind of come to this point in my learning where I think we kind of overdo it as a, as a subculture. Bushcraft is a culture. It's a subculture at, at, at the least it's a subculture of camping. Um, maybe even put as like survival skills, but again, that goes back to the bushcraft by any other name podcast episode where I explained to everybody why I prefer the term bushcraft. Um, I, I think it's something that we do in this culture of ours where we are very tool heavy. We're very gear heavy. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, especially when you're first learning. But as you go along, you start to see these philosophies of practical use of tools and we've talked about the four tool philosophy in the past during our very first episode of the tools of the trade. I suppose this could be another tools of the trade episode or segment uh, or part of the series. So maybe we'll, even though it's going to be called the knife revisited, we'll put it as tools of the trade, the knife revisited or something like that. Some catchy nickname or title or something. Who knows? Can you tell it's late at night while I'm recording this? And so we use these tools very heavily we rely on these tools very heavily in bushcraft and people will talk and talk and talk about all the aspects you need in that knife 
you need to have this kind of steel with this kind of heat treatment, with this kind of a handle material, this quality of edge geometry and on and on and on and on. And for absolute, you know, efficiency. Yes. Some of these features are important. Uh, a very thin, the thinnest edge you can possibly go without sacrificing strength. Yes. A hundred percent. Sure. That is, uh, that is looking at efficiency of cutting and everything else. Yes. I, I agree with that. We've had these kinds of conversations on the podcast before. Yes. But go back to that episode. We did a couple of episodes back where I was talking about the riddle of steel and how is steel superior to copper or bronze or stone and, and by what definition of superior. And remember that we have millions of years of edge tool technologies and only in the last thousand or so couple of thousand have we had steel in its form as it is now even less than that and so do we have to have all these features no do we like all these features yes and there's the rub i think do we like it or is it necessary which is it i like having a handle on my knife that's because I like it. But you look at tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, generations, thousands of generations, tens and hundreds of thousands of generations, stone tools did not have a lot of handles for knives. The number one cutting tool was a flake of stone that was just grasped between the fingers and used to cut. And so is it necessary? No. So by that definition is a comfortable, robust handle that fits the hand like a well-worn glove and fits and doesn't cause any friction or rubbing in certain areas that cause hot spots, which lead to blisters. Is any of that necessary? No, but we like it. And that's that rub I'm talking about. Just because you like something doesn't mean it's bad. And if that's the only reason you, you, you use it, I like this because I like this. It, it does it make it more efficient? Not necessarily. For carving, uh, for skinning game, as we talked about before, a flake of obsidian or even just a flake of chert can outcut most steel knives. But we don't have to do the same, we don't have the same skill level to manufacture and use those stone flakes in compared to a steel knife. I can just buy a steel knife. I know how they work. I use it. And so there's a benefit to that. I like it because I like it. And there's nothing wrong with that. So what am I getting at here? Sometimes we can't see the forest for the trees. We get into these long debates about knives. And this happens on forums. This happens on all types of social media. What's the best knife? And you will have... 10 billion answers. There'll be more opinions than there are humans on the planet of what makes the best knife. What is, who makes the best knife? Which model is the best knife? Why is it the best knife? Why does your knife suck? And my knife is better. All that kind of stuff. And people will tell you all these little sales pitches because that's what they are. They are selling you on their decision. And I can tell you all the reasons that the D-Fly 4.5 manufactured by Topps Knives designed by me is the best knife. 
I think it is because I love that knife. It is my go-to knife on every trip I go on. It's my go-to knife for every hunting trip I go on. It's for every camping trip. It's for when I'm doing projects in the backyard, when I'm doing projects at my base camp, sugar bush, what have you. That's the knife nine times out of 10 that I grab. And so there's a lot of sales pitches I can give you about that knife, that the handle is slim enough to be very, very discreet and it's going to fit against your body when you're inside of a car or a truck transporting yourself to your campsite, uh, all the way to it being robust at the same time and being able to be held by a big meat hook of a hand like what I got, as well as people who have smaller hands can hold them quite comfortably as well. The blade has really good steel. It's differentially heat treated. It's got a good edge geometry. The, the, design of the blade is meant for good woodworking as well as good meat processing and plant processing and yada 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 has a nice leather sheath that has a hardened tip on the spine which means you can throw ferro rod sparks very very hot all that kind of stuff their sales pitches their sales pitches and there's nothing wrong with those sales pitches but their sales pitches and even if you're not the designer of a knife but it's the knife you've carried for x amount of time you love it to death and someone else says, my knife's better. You're going to sell them on why your knife is better. You like your knife. You have that knife. That knife is better than this knife. And this knife is crap compared to that knife. And all your arguments are sales pitches because it comes down to, I like it. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we get too deep. We get too much focus on the knife and not so much on the skills of the knife user. And this can go back to the knowledge first episode way back. I think it's like episode 10 or maybe eight of this podcast. We're at 112. So there's been a lot of episodes. So it's hard to keep up on which one I'm referring to. But the title was knowledge first and talking about skills versus gear and working on your mental toolkit more than your physical toolkit. And so when you look at like, the four tool philosophy that me and Nick Dillingham and a lot of other people espouse. It's removing ourselves from a lot of the arguments and a lot of the debates and, and trying to simplify our gear selection. I want an ax for chopping, splitting, bucking, all that kind of stuff. I want a saw for when I don't want to use the ax to cut up and section up and truncate wood or fell wood. I have a knife that's a straight knife and you don't even need the saw. The, the, that's not part of the four tool philosophy. That's the additional item. That's the fifth item. That's the, the <laughs> dirty secret of the four tool philosophy. You have a straight knife or belt knife or what many people call a bushcraft knife or what I prefer to just call a general purpose bush knife. That is a straight edge of some form or straight blade of some form, whether it's a Mora companion or a green river four and a half inch belt knife or a d fly 4.5 designed by me manufactured by tops knives whatever it may be that's your straight knife that's your belt knife and that's going to be used for a lot of your woodwork and meal prep and food processing and animal processing and yada 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 and then you're gonna have a crooked knife we've talked about the crooked knife on many occasions and you know all the virtues of the crooked knife already if you listen to this podcast but just to reiterate it's more effective as a woodworking tool to be able to shape things with a lot more control and a lot more comfort for long work compared to a straight knife. And then you have an awl for perforating. It could be a square awl, a triangle awl, a round awl, whatever you decide to carry. It can be used for making birch bark baskets. It can be used for making cedar and ash splint baskets. It can be used for making 
uh, elm bark projects, leather work, fixing your shoes, fixing your belt. It could be used for making woven baskets. It can be used for so many different things and even just boring holes in wood to be able to make aspects of a project. So the uh, knock on my arrows, I'll often just take an awl and I'll drill through, uh, across the grain on my arrow shaft near the butt end about, let's say three quarters of an inch to half, not even three quarters of an inch, closer to uh, three eighths to a quarter inch. I'll bore through away from the butt end and I bore right through and I get this nice perfect hole. And then I just take my knife tip and cut out everything between the butt end and that hole as a stop cut. And I have a nice knock for my arrow shaft to rest on the arrow on the bow string. Um, that's a great example of how you can use an all on wood. You can also use it on projects like when you start on a handhold or on the baseboard of a, of a bow drill or fire bow. Using an awl to get the hole started is a lot easier and safer than trying to use your knife to do it. Making holes through a piece of wood for your bow of your bow of your bow drill. I like to use holes instead of notches or knocks to try and hold the string in place because they're more secure. I can make three holes. Um, eventually, we're going to do a little video on our TikTok and in a few other places that shows my preferred bow drill setup and how I like to use it. But that's further down the line, not really what we're here to talk about. But I can use my knife to finish those cuts, but the awl makes it safer to start. And so those are the four tool philosophy plus the dirty little secret, the saw cool. We're, we're down to four basic tools plus a fifth. If you really want it, uh, that you can do a lot of things with, you can do, you, you can build your own oasis in the wilderness with those four tools. And that four tool philosophy is carried by experience. The more experience you are with working with your tools and working with the, the, the materials that you want to shape again, wood, fi plant fiber, bark, uh, animal hide, bones, the flesh of the animal, butchering, all that kind of stuff, the more comfortable you are with those things and the more further down the Dunning-Kruger chart you are, graph you are, where your experience uh, starts to supersede your ego or your confidence levels, the more you realize you need less and less of those tools to be used. And the arguments of what do you need in those tools becomes more... I don't know. I could, I could easily say ego driven, but that can get people's backs up. Um, I don't, I don't care who the manufacturer of an ax is because I'm going to modify it to my liking. I don't care who makes the all because I'm going to modify it to my liking. Uh, I'm not, I don't care who makes the crooked knife because I make my crooked knives for the most part. Um, my friend Nick Dillingham made my favorite crooked knife though. And that's the one that I kind of base my, uh, geometry of edge geometry to, and then I'll modify them to the, to the needs. I have birch bark canoe uh, crooked knives. I have paddle making crooked knives, bowl making crooked knives that are all based off what Nick made me as a general purpose crooked knife. Uh, so it's what I like I'll manufacture or create or modify. So whether it's a snow and Neely axe or a plum axe or a Husqvarna or Wetterlings, which don't exist anymore, uh, Gransfer's uh, council tool, I don't care. People will tell me, I will always ask, what's your, what's the best axe? The one you got that fits what you needed to do. You are what's important here. What do you like in that tool? 
don't ask me what I like. And I'll, I'll give you the features that I prefer that I recommend, but I'm not going to tell you a brand. I'm not going to tell you a make and model. There, there, there's no real need for that because your preferences are going to always supersede my opinion. And it's always going to be that way. Even though I've been teaching this stuff for nearly, well, actually over 15 years, I've been teaching bushcraft, but learning this stuff for well over 20 yeah, well over 20 something years, 22, 23, 24 years of my life now has been spent focusing on just bushcraft and, and survival skills and ancestral knowledges. I, I don't have an opinion that is going to supersede your preferences when it comes down to a tool. I can tell you that you need a straight edge, no serrations, no sawback, and you'll be like, well, that's what I like on my knife then screw my opinion. It's your perspective and your preferences that are important here. How do you use that knife is more important to me than what knife you're using. And that's really what this episode I want to kind of hammer into is understanding that we don't, A, need to have this knife debate all the damn time. There's the large knife versus small knife debate. And I've written articles on it in the past on how it really doesn't matter, but these are reasons that the small knife are great. And these are reasons that a large knife is great. Again, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. If you like using big knives, use big knives. You may not be able to do the same kind of carving I can do with a tiny knife, but you're going to be happy with what you got and vice versa. If you want to just take a tiny little like Swiss army knife back into the wilderness, so be it. A lot of people who have been on survival shows who have now been labeled survival experts are carrying Leatherman Waves and Gerber Pro Tools, these multi-tool systems and Swiss Army knives, and using them to do most of what they need to get done. Because then they have the bigger tools for the bigger tasks, axes, saws, etc., machetes, what have you. So does it really matter what kind of knife it is. We, we have a lot of conversations about this and I can talk to the cows come home, ask our students and ask our supporters at Patreon when it comes down to knife talk. I can talk all day long about knives. The, the concepts of steel, the concepts of heat treatments, the concepts of tempering and all those uh, conversations regarding geometry and, and comfort and all those kinds of things. At the end of the day, though, you look at those experts, the true experts, not the TV experts, not the people that have been doing this for a few years. And well, I was really into, into being a canoe guide for a while. And, you know, I got on this survival show and now I'm an expert in all things survival because I lasted long, a long while. And now people like me for that reason, or, Hey, I I'm a, I'm a mountain climber, but I, you know, ascended so many extremely dangerous mountains. Now I'm a survival expert. I'm talking about people like Andre Francois Bourbeau, Morse Kohansky, Tom Roycroft, uh, Gino Ferry. These, these true unadulterated experts in their field, true, in my opinion, experts. They may not like that term. They may not, never want to be called an expert in their field. I'm calling them that they've been doing this for decades. And as I've said in previous episodes, I think on our, our most recent episode prior to this one, the modern technology one, where I made it very clear, I've been doing this stuff for a long time in my lifetime. 
a long ass time, but it is, it pales in comparison to people like David Westcott, David Holliday, again, Gino Morris, Andre Francois, all these people, it pales in comparison to them. I hold them to a higher standard than my opinion. And what I notice with a lot of them is they won't tell you the best knife. They'll show you what they like. They'll show you what they like. But often when you ask them, what's the best survival knife or the best bush knife, they'll say flat out, it's, some, uh, 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 this is a paraphrasing Morse Kohansky, uh, a sharpened pry bar that works wood really, really well. And I'll add an addendum to that of, and it has to be comfortable in the hand. If your hand is blistering up because you're using that handle and it's an uncomfortable handle, then it sucks. The knife sucks. But if you like it and it doesn't make you feel uncomfortable using it all day long, so be it. Use it. And that's like the closest I will get to what a knife should be. It should be an addendum to what Morris Kohansky said. A sharpened pry bar, a well-balanced sharpened pry bar that works wood really, really well. And then I'll add on with a comfortable handle. That's all that really matters at the end of the day. Whether it's a Mora or a Garber, uh, the more Garberg versus a more Companion versus the traditional Clipper versus a Green River four and a half inch versus six inch butcher knife or a Castrum or a, uh, oh, what were they called? Wood Jewel or a Allenwood, genuine Allenwood Wood Lore designed by uh, Ray Mears with Allen Woods. Um, opinions and, and uh, addendums added to it, whether it's a Dave Beck WSK knife versus a Topps knives tracker knife, which are practically the same knife, but one was designed differently <clears throat> by Dave Beck and the other was uh, modifications of that design by Tom Brown Jr. or however the story goes. Doesn't matter. Does it work wood really, really well? Is it well balanced? Is it comfortable in the hand? Is it strong? That's all that really matters at the end of the day. That's really all that matters. But people keep getting back into the debates. Well, why is this knife this way? Why don't you have it this way? I like mine this way. Then have it that way. And this sounds like I'm just frustrated and yelling into the void. And to a degree it is. But it's an important thing to consider is why is it those of us that are younger, those of us not necessarily younger in generational age, more in our experience level in this craft, in bushcraft. Why is it that we argue and debate about the equipment while the elders of this community just do things? And yeah, they got some opinions that are based on years of experience, but those, those opinions are simple. Those, uh, those opinions are simple and fact-based and that's it and and meant to not they, 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 their opinions cut through the bullshit they don't care about the steel quality they don't care about the heat treat they don't care about the handle material they care about what the knife does for them and i think that's where where we need to go i think that's where us as bush crafters if that's the term we want to call ourselves if we want to reach a pinnacle of their level and even succeed it or supersede it or whatever terminology you want to use there, we need to start simplifying our opinions and increasing our skills. 
And so that's what this episode is really about. This is a long intro to hopefully a fairly short episode, but that is really what this, uh, this episode is about is increasing our skill level while decreasing our bullshitting and decreasing our debating and decreasing our opinions while we focus on facts and skills. So let's start exploring this. So I think the first stop on this conversation needs to be, when is a knife a detriment? In other words, when do we use a knife when we really don't need to or really shouldn't be? And and I see it all the time. And I've done it all the time. And I've slowly been weaning myself away from that as my experience level grows. And great examples of that can be safety, but it can also be exhaustion or tasks. And this, this comes up really common with bigger tools, especially like axes and knives, uh, axes and machetes specifically, or parangs, whatever large cutting implement you have. Uh, John Conningham wrote this amazing book called Walking the Jungle. I highly recommend it to a lot of folks, to anyone that's listening. If you're interested in the Amazon, if you're interested in hiking in the jungles and, and traveling in the jungles, it's a great read. And in it, he talks about how he mostly carried a pair of pruning shears and maybe occasionally a folding saw. And his argument against a machete is really interesting because I'm a machete nerd. I love machetes, but it's something I also observed when I was down in Colombia. And I was reading this book and reading passages of it because I'm hoping to get back down to the jungle in the next year, hopefully in the next year, by the end of this year, it'd be great. But it was really fascinating to read his arguments against carrying a machete uh, because it was more heavy than the other tools. Therefore, it's more weight on your back or weight on your hip. If you're carrying it in a, in a scabbard rather than your pack, they're more burdensome, which means that like, if you're in really tight brush, you can't swing that thing very effectively. But it's also more exhausting to use and frankly, more dangerous. And this is something that's really an important aspect Yes, with machetes, but also with just any knife or cutting implement. We use them sometimes to our own detriment of safety. And I've seen this again and again, and also just practicality. Yes, it is not difficult for me to cut a sapling down with a knife or an axe or a saw and then trim off all the branches to make sapling poles for a shelter. Whether that's a full-size wigwam or a Kohansky super shelter or a hunter's lodge or whatever arch frame shelter you're making. You can cut off all those branches with a knife, no problem. Or you can put that knife away instead of flick cutting and having it bounce around in the air and going very fast because we all want to be buzz saws when we're swinging a knife. What if we sheath the knife and we reach up, let's say it's a hardwood tree. Most hardwood saplings the branches grow in a more upward direction than downward. Conifer, they usually grow more downward. Your balsam firs, your spruce, they, they hang their boughs low at the tip. Whereas most hardwoods, beech, birch, maple, hickory, the branches face upward more. They're, they're at a more vertical, uh, sorry, more upward motion or growth. And therefore, if we start at the butt of the sapling, where we cut it off from the ground or from its trunk or from its root or its stump, whatever term we want to use there, and I grasp the first branch above that stump, above that butt, and I pull and yank it towards the butt, 
90% of the time, as long as my grip strength is good, that branch breaks off. And maybe it gave me a bit of a pinch or a sting on the inside of my finger. But if I hold onto that branch and pad the inside of my fingers and grasp the next branch, that one comes off easier with less pain, with no pain usually. And on the third one, it's very easy. And by the time I get to the tip of the tree or the top of the sapling, there is no discomfort. And I've got a wad of branches in one hand and they tear out. And yeah, there's a little bit of a scarring on the branch or on the pole, but it doesn't really affect its use. Not overly. Sometimes with an alder or a willow, yeah, it can, it can weaken it, but those aren't saplings that we want to really use for shelters often. They're, they're not the best. They're, they are often very fragile and short-lived anyways. But also, now I have a handful of branches that are have all the tips of the branches at one end. I'm holding the butt ends in my grasp, which means I have a handful of boughs that can immediately be put down onto a bough bed, used as a type of thatch, made into quick withies to tie the shelter together, whatever it may be. But what if we don't take the branches off at all? What if we leave them on? And this is something I observed with Morse. And this is what I've observed with a few folks. You, you go along and you trim off all those branches. And you always leave a little bit of a stub that might have a little sharp spur on it. And then you bend and contort the frame into the structure that you need it to be. And then you cover it with a tarp. Could be a poly tarp like you get from a hardware store. Could be a sill nylon tarp. Could be a really expensive Dacron tarp, whatever it may be. Whatever bushcrafting tarp you bring with you. And I'm putting air quotes around bushcrafting because I always find that kind of term as a sales pitch terminology absurd. But whatever tarp it may be, we drape it over the shelter and to secure it, we tie it down really tight. We lash it down or we weigh it down with logs and rocks and what have you. And we get it tight to the frame. All those little spurs almost immediately start poking at the fabric. They might not poke through immediately, but a little bit of wind, a little bit of heavy rainfall or heavy snowfall or shifting of you inside the shelter. And they start to work their way through the fabric. And now you have holes in your tarp. This can be a burden in this or a nuisance as simply the nuisance because you got a couple of drips or this could lead to tears when watching moors make shelters arch frame shelters out of saplings he left the branches on therefore there's no sharp spurs going through the tarp but also he now has all these tying points of branches that he can kind of twist and contort together like withies like little ropes attached to the poles already and that's just genius. That's, that's simplicity, but it's genius. And that's why it's genius. It's simple. It cuts away, no pun intended, a bunch of extra work and preserves my tarp and makes putting the shelter together easier. And I have to use less rope or cordage of whatever kind. That to me is singing, not just speaking experience. It's singing it from the rooftop, shouting it from the rooftops, exclaiming it from the mountainsides. That experience is superseding the gear. Knowledge first. And I'll go one better. You look at indigenous people around the world who maybe today, very few cultures in the world still hunt uh, traditionally 
with bows and arrows. You might point out Doba Jahansi, also as the San, a Bushman of the Kalahari. Uh, you may point out the Hadza in, uh, in Kenya, Tanzania area. Many of these people don't carry bows and arrows on the average basis. Many of them, if they do go hunting, take a firearm. Some of them still carry bows, but it's not, not, not necessarily across the board. And we got to stop generalizing that kind of stuff. That's that primitivization of, of cultures that I always, always gripe about. But when you observe them making arrows, different cultures, they'll go up to a tree and they'll select branches that are going to make good arrows, whether it's pieces of arrowwood here in Ontario uh, or maple leaf viburnum or dogwood, whether it's red osier dogwood, uh, alternate leaf dogwood, whatever it may be. They grasp the branch that they want and they rip it off the tree. And that's it. They don't sit there and chip away at it with a hatchet. They don't snap it off with a machete. They don't carve it off with a knife. They rip it off with their bare hands. Basket making, very similar traditions I've seen. A lot of indigenous people who make red willow or red osier dogwood baskets, they go up and they find shrubs that have nice branches on them and they rip them off. Yes, sometimes we cut them. I, I cut a lot of them uh, and I do that purposely to coppice this, uh, these shrubs to make longer, straighter shoots for better, bigger baskets later. But if I just need to make a basket, or I need to make a snare. We've made red willow or red osier dogwood snares in classes for demonstration, but I've also used them. We don't pull them out of the ground. We don't cut them out of the ground. We find where these red willows are. Again, red osier dogwood is the proper name, but I'll say red willow. In the swamps where we see rabbit trails from snowshoe hair, cottontail, whatever it may be. And then we find red willows near those trails and we rip off all the little branches and twigs that are going to get in the way of making a snare. We warm the end up because you're just in the wintertime. We warm the end up with our hands or in our mouth. And then you twist it and make it into a withy right there. Make a little knot, reach back, tie that into a slip knot. Now you have a snare and it's already anchored into the ground, into the frozen ground. So it's definitely not going to get pulled out by a rabbit. And then you just bend it down to where the rabbit is going to be running through. And you put either a block of snow or heavy branch over that snare to keep it down in the right position. That is very simple. And you can repeat that again and again and again throughout the whole wetland or the whole area that you're setting snares. And therefore, I don't have to carry snare wire with me. By the way, if you buy a spool of brass snare wire at a hardware store for snaring, you're going to need a lot more snare wire than you think. You need a lot of snare wire. Talk to professional trappers who are setting hundreds of snares, which is what you kind of have to do to have success rates that are increased enough to be able to catch a lot of food. Uh, you need a lot more snare wire than what's coming on one of those spools. Uh, a proper snare made of wire should be approximately as long as from your palm of your hand down to your elbow and back up. That's how long it can be. It should be. So that you have enough snare wire to anchor off further away from the trail. If that's the only anchors you can find at that spot, uh, so that you can make, uh, you make more complex trap sets, uh, all those kinds of reasons you want to have long snares, not short snares. If you have a snare that's only eight inches long, there's not a lot to work with there. You can get by, but it's not as effective. And in my experience, you can get maybe 
six of those snares made out of one of those spools of snare wire. So coming back to knowledge first, but also trying to think of the right words here. Work smart, not hard. We can just find red willows and just make snares instead of having to bring the snare wire in the first place. I carry snare wire, but I carry a big spool of actual trapping trapper supply snare wire, which is like, I don't know, 16 gauge, maybe even smaller. Um, steel wire usually that's blackened. It's not brass shiny wire. Um, I honestly think that the brass wire is used because a people are worried they're going to rust and they want to use it the same. They want to keep that spool in their, in their hunting bag or their pack, uh, their pack out kit. And they don't want to rust therefore brass, but also I think it's because it's shiny so people can find them again because they don't know how to set their snares and then mark their snares. They can find them after a snowstorm. Uh, but anyways, it's neither here nor there. Just going back to this concept of being able to just rip off shoots or use the shoots in place in situ removes a lot of headaches of having to use my knife. I don't have to sheath my unsheath my knife very often, setting snares, building shelters, all that kind of stuff. I can keep the knife in the sheath where it is safe and I am safe. Think about a true emergency situation, a genuine survival scenario. Let's say we got stranded out in the woods and we have to build a shelter. We are under high stress. Even if we're going at a steady pace and we're keeping ourselves focused on safety, we are in a stress scenario and therefore there's a higher likelihood of injury, period, end of story. But it's also safer for the knife in another way. Think about that longevity. We're in a survival scenario. Longevity of edge retention. There is all kinds of rants and raves and research on edge retention. And this kind of steel has better edge retention. This steel has better edge retention. This steel with this particular heat treat has the best edge retention. All knives dull. All knives dull. Doesn't matter what knife it is. It's going to go dull eventually. Let's say we're in a survival scenario. We don't know how long we're going to be out there. If everything works in our favor within 72 hours, we're going to be rescued, right? What if it's longer? Let's, let's maybe if it's not, even if it's not a survival scenario, let's go to uh, something like that show alone where everybody is constantly trying to stay out as long as possible. If my knife is dull, things get harder to do. And so I have to resharpen it. Some of those folks on that show are smart enough to bring some sort of sharpening device if they're allowed to. And most of us do carry some sort of sharpening tool. What if we lose that? Sure. I have on multiple occasions, you check our Instagram out. You can check a lot of different social media. We I've made sharpening stones in the field. It's not that difficult. It just takes some time, but let's think about the, lo the logistics of a survival scenario where I have to make a sharpening stone which means I have to have two stones minimum. If you want to be perfect, you'll have three stones and you rub the two together for let's say half an hour. And then you grab the third stone and rub those two stones with that stone for another half an hour each. And then you rub all three stones individually against each other again and again and again and again. That'll make a true flat zero flat plane. And now you have sharpening stones. You have three sharpening stones. Even You're better off than you were before. This can take hours. This can take literal hours hours to manufacture sharpening stones and you got to start off with stones that'll work you've got big chunks of of granite it's going to take you days to get those things smooth enough and you got to have rocks that are or stones that are already flattish you can't start off with cobbles you can't start off with nice round 
you know, cobbles of rock. You've got to start off with flat rocks. You're going to break the rock and have to get flat surfaces and grind those surfaces against each other. This is all a lot of work. And those are hours that I could be spending getting more firewood, purifying and disinfecting water, making my shelter more efficient and more effective to keep me dry and warm and comfortable and so I can get a good night's sleep, which is, in my opinion, much more important than almost any other aspect of survival because the less sleep you get, the more stress levels you have and the less you can focus and therefore the more likely you're going to get injured or killed. And you're not going to be able to have as good a response time either so that when you hear a plane off in the distance, you will be stumbling around trying to get that fire lit to make that smoke signal and yada, 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 yada. And you miss the plane and now you're out there for even longer. And so if I can keep from having to make sharpening stones or spending time retouching my edge, the better off I'll be. So if I can avoid using my knife until I need to use my knife, that's better because that edge will last longer. And yes, I can use the side of my boot, my leather belt, the pack strap on my pack, whatever, to strop the knife and get it realigned. What if I'm so focused on trying to get this stuff cut that I'm not paying attention to the, uh, <laughs> the knots and I'm not paying attention to gravel and I'm not paying attention to rock as much people start carving in stupid positions all the time, including me. This is not a question on the person's intelligence. It's just a question on their decision at that moment of that stupid moment where you glance your knife off of a rock, glance your knife off of a hard piece of wood and it rolls the edge badly enough that you can't easily push it back with a strop. Okay. So if I use my knife less, those chances dwindle. Those chances of damaging the edge dwindle. And so as an efficiency perspective, I want to break off branches. I want to snap off branches. I want to tear things apart with my bare hands because it's going to save my edge and I'm not going to get cut. Years ago, about four, maybe five years ago now, I think it was four years ago, a good friend of mine who's eventually going to be on the podcast. I'm not going to force him to retell this story. I promise. I promise to him and I'm not going to name who it is. Uh, he was helping me make a wigwam for Curve Lake First Nation. And so I had to get a bunch of cedar poles that we we're going to use as the external frame to hold the bark on. And I said, hey, let's not use knives. It's been raining. It's slippery out. Let's keep the knives away. And I showed everybody how to break the branches off of the cedar poles very, very easily. He decided he didn't want to risk getting blisters or, you know, splinters. And so he rather uses knife. And I said to him, Hey, let's just use our hands. And he said, I don't have my gloves here. They're in my pack way over there. I'd rather just do this. And a few seconds later, the knife bounced off of a cedar uh, branch, very, very thin, they're pencil thin, very whippy, very flexy, bounced off and came back. And the edge didn't cut him. It was the spine of the knife. And it was a Mora, an old school from the 90s Mora knife that he had picked up when he went to Sweden as a kid. And the spine of the knife, the 90 degree angle of that knife edge or the knife spine, sorry, hit his knuckle, cutting down and severing, partially severing one of his tendons. Freak accident. A freak accident was completely avoidable if he didn't use his knife. 
right? We then had to pack him out, first aid, pack him out, get him into a car, send him to a hospital. And he had a week off of work because he could not do his job. His job required him using hand tools. He could not flex his hand because he was going to damage the tendon more. He had to take a week off. And to this day, he has stiffness in that hand, in that finger. Um, completely changed the game. If you go to YouTube, one of my longtime friends, John Campbell, uh, Arizona Bushman, he was one of the first people I met online that was into bushcraft like I was back when I was in, in high school. Um, and he was in his 20s, I believe, at the time. Years later, I'm now running Canadian bushcraft, teaching in person, all that kind of stuff. And he's running his school down in Arizona, Arizona Bushman. And he had a YouTube channel. And we had a few videos out at the time as well. Uh, but he was doing really good with videos. He was putting out a lot of videos. And in one of them, he had nicked himself with his knife. And in another video, he'd nicked himself with his knife. And a good friend of ours, Mikhail, who's been on the podcast before, uh, said to him, careful, dude, everything comes in threes. And we didn't see any videos from him. He, he didn't post any updates or anything like that to the, to the chat rooms or the forums in about a week. And then a video came out. And what had happened was he was setting his knife into a piece of wood to then demonstrate batoning, to split the wood. Ironically, when he set the knife into the wood, the wood split. It was a piece of pine. The edge found a, a, a natural split in the wood. And it came all the way down and guillotine chopped his finger off. It was hanging on by like a tendon and some skin. Completely severed his finger. Except for like, okay, not completely severed. 98% severed his finger off. Because I know somebody out there is going to fact check and be like, he didn't cut it off completely. He didn't have to go pick it up. It was hanging on by a part of a tendon and part of his skin. And he had to drive himself out of the Arizona wilderness, get to a hospital and have it reattached. And to this day, he has discomfort, pain. And the, the irony is he could have looked at that piece of wood and said, hey, there's a split here. Maybe if I hit it hard enough with this little wooden wedge, I can split this thing right in half. There's a great video, uh, I think from Woods, like the company Woods, like who make tents and other camping gear. They did this like great explorer or great adventure. I can't remember what it was. It was a, you can find it online um, of all these people with the host of this like kind of commercial show testing out how to split a piece of wood. I want all you guys to split this piece of wood. All you have with you is a knife. And a bunch of them start batoning the piece of wood. The piece of wood is like six, eight, six, between five and seven inches in diameter. It's a pretty robust piece of wood. And two of the people, if not more than broke their knives, trying to baton through. And out came Andre Francois Bourbeau, who carved a couple of wedges and drove the wedges into the blocks of wood and split them in half. This is going back to the work smarter, not harder thing. But what is really getting down to the bare bones of it is they didn't really need to use their knife to do that abusive work, but we all baton. I was batoning just a couple of days ago. We all do it, but we don't have to. And there's times where you say, let's do this smart. Let's make some wedges. And there's other times where you're like, oh, it's wrist thick. I can definitely split that in half. 
and you'll use a baton, you strike it. Ryan t- jokes all the time because he's witnessed me with piece of cedar and even piece of locust resting the knife right on top of the, the piece of wood and striking it with the flat of my palm. And that's enough to wet, to, to strike the wood in uh, the knife into the wood and split it mostly with cedar. And that's from years and years and years of experience watching how wood works, how wood splits, what caused it to do it. And there's certain moments where I know it's not going to work. I got to use a stick to hit it or hell with it. Let's use an ax or hell with it. Let's use some wedges. And other times where I can be like, "Mm, no, this is the right size of wood. I can get this to happen. And I can basically slap my knife into the wood and split it. This is not something I recommend you do. This is just from years of me learning what I can do, what my body mechanics can do. I'm a big guy. I've got big hands. They're heavy. Uh, I've, I've able, I've been able to basically rip wood in half with my hands, not like, you know, Steve Rogers and, uh, was that wasn't infinity war? Was it civil war or something like that? I can't remember whatever, whatever Marvel movie was where captain America ripped a piece of fire would have, it became a gif and it became a meme. Um, I'm not doing that kind of stuff. I'm not Bradley Thor, whatever his name is on, on TikTok. I have split cedar with my teeth. If you know the wood, if you know your material, the more experience you have, the less you need to use a tool. Your, your body is your first tool. Your, your body is your first tool. If I need to break a piece of wood down to fit inside of a wood stove, and I, I want to get it done now. And I don't want to wait for a while. I don't want to go back to my pack. I don't need a saw to bucket down into small pieces. I can go up to the crotch of a tree of a good, robust cedar or maple or whatever trees or whatever tree crotch I have nearby, place the long pole in there, put about eight inches of it into the crotch and then push the pole forward and break that piece off. And if I have an open fire, I can just burn it long and just feed it into the fire as it goes or burn it in half and then burn those in half and then burn those in half. There's so many different directions we can go with firewood where we don't need a knife. We don't need an ax. We don't need a saw. And so when we look at these conversations of the best knife, the best tool, the first tool you need to have is your body. Because you're the one, people always, uh, I remember the first time I learned under Morse Kohansky, Kohan, uh, I was there with my friends, Lucas Wagner, Tammy, uh, Tammy Wagner now. Uh, they got married a couple of years ago, which was awesome. I, I wish I was there for the wedding. But anyways, uh, Devin uh, Waugh was also there. And a friend that became, a person who became a friend later was there, Chris Kong, longtime friend of mine now. Since we first met, he's been very, very dear to my heart. Um and one of the first days we were there, Morris took a hatchet that somebody happened to have and started swinging and chopping things and making the perfect, precise cuts. It wasn't his hatchet, wasn't his axe, and it was by on the fly, completely on the fly, OTF. And Devin turned to me and said, it's an extension of his body. No, his body is an extension of the axe. You, you see what I'm getting at here? The tools are things that we put in our hands and we're the multi-tool. The more you understand what your body can do and what you can do to materials from breaking sticks. When I go to get cordage 
when I want to get a basswood, any time of the year, basswood, doesn't matter if it's wintertime, summertime, I want to get basswood bark to tie things together. I go to shoots. I go to thumb thick to pinky thick sticks and I break them off the tree or I break them off the stump if they're coppiced shoots and I just start snapping them. I don't sit there with my knife and slowly peel it off. And you'll see me do that in certain videos where I'm peeling the, 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 the stick to get those branch, uh, those uh, shoots turned into cordage or those poles turned into cordage, the bark removed. And this is what I was thinking about while I was doing those. I was like, I don't need to do it this way. And if it's cold weather or if it's not the time of year that peeling is best, which is like late May to early July, you can just bend the stick until it breaks and there's the bark in your hands. If it's winter time, heat it over the fire first and then do it. And you have branches that are breaking and turning into cordage. Uh, Silverberry, also known as wolf willow, is one of the few cordages in the western provinces and northwestern states where you can get the cordage in the wintertime. And the way you do it is not with a knife. It's you go to the branches of the shrub and you pull the branches apart. And when they split and break, the bark shucks off. So why do we use knives to peel them all the time? When it gets down to, we, we talked about in, I think, I can't remember if it was in, I think it was in the, the Riddle of Steel episode, a couple episodes back, where I talked about the, the green bone fractures, where you break the leg of a deer, break the leg of a rabbit that you've killed, and then you cause a compound fracture and take those shards of bone out and use those to cut the animal up. That's saving your knife edge. The, the only time I ever witnessed that in person before I started doing it myself, it was because the person didn't want to use their knife. They didn't want to pull their knife out, get it bloodied up, get it dull against a piece of bone or something when they were skinning the animal. They just wanted the skin off the animal. So they broke the bone, punctured it through the skin, pulled that shard out and used that green bone to cut up the rest of the animal. Do you see what I'm getting at here? We, we focus too much on the knife. We focus too much on, is it this manufacturer? Is it this model? Is it this design? Is it this kind of steel? Is it this kind of handle material? Is this kind of a sheath? Does it come with a ferro rod? Does it have serrations? Those are things we like. They're not things we need. And to be able to evolve our craft, we need to be able to supersede all of those opinions and get into the skills. Bushcraft is not the brand of knife. It is not the brand of tent. It is not the brand of anything. It is what you do. It is what you do. And so with everything said and done, we need to consider how we use our tools, when we use our tools, why we use these tools. Those are the important questions we have to ask all the time when it comes down to bushcraft, when it comes down to working in the kitchen, when it comes down to working in the bush, when it comes down to carving in your workshop, when it comes down to using power tools, hand tools, all of it. Why do we use these? How do we use them? When do we use them? And as we work with them and master these crafts, this true craft that is bushcraft, where can we go without them? Where can we go with less of them? What can we do more with less? When can we do more with less? How can we do more with less?
Let's not get caught up in the equipment debates. Let's not get caught up in the newest sales pitch and the newest product and the newest gear. As much as I am a proponent of accepting that modernity and modern technology are beneficial and not to be demonized, I also think that we need to, in a sense purify the way of bushcraft by simplifying ourselves and simplifying our, our, our tools and our equipment, taking less equipment. It is always these 10 item challenges that people will do is a great exercise. Do less. We've done, I've done trips where we took three items. I chose a fire starting device. I chose a cook pot and I chose a knife. Could have been a machete, could have been an axe, could have been a saw, could have been any cutting tool. It could have been no cutting tool. On courses that I've taken, if you dropped an item or you failed on a challenge of some sort during the course, you would lose an item and you would have to do without and you would have to improvise. This uh, improvisation is paramount to benefiting yourself in your craft. Learning how to improvise and adapt are necessary to become better at what we do. And therefore, when we have those tools, we're even more proficient with them because now we know what we can do without them. Now let's see what we can do with them in our hands. To me, the, the praise for the Mora knife is warranted, but it's over in a sense, it's over simplified. Because, well, Morris Kohansky carried a Mora knife because he was showing what he can do with a less than perfect knife, with an inexpensive knife. It's not that the inexpensive knife is better, it's that he was better. And that's where we need to go with our craft. You need to get to the level where you don't need a fancy, expensive knife and you can use a simple knife or no knife. That is the goal here. That was why he did that. That's why he demonstrated that. The guy loved his Skookum Bush tool, which is a very, very nice knife that's well-designed, well-manufactured, and well worth the price and, sadly, a waiting list. Designed by Rod Garcia over in Whitefish, Montana. Met the guy, love the guy, admire the guy, respect the guy. His knife is amazing. But there's a reason Moore's was seen with the Mora, and his name is almost matched to the knife every time it's talked about in the in the field of bushcraft well morris kohansky carried more knives because he could he could get by with a simple knife and that's what we all need to start to do more and more of i have a lot of beautiful handmade knives that i've crafted that i've had crafted for me by amazing knife makers like joel delorme nick dillingham uh goran down in from tenenboca knives in columbia who, when I brought out my machete, he said, yeah, it's cool. You don't need that though. You're not going to need that on this trip. A small knife is all you need. And he carries a very small, when I was with him, a very small Golok machete thing was maybe an eight inch blade at most. And his little buddy, which is, I believe referred to as the little buddy on, or it's just the Tanaboka mini Puko on tops knives. They manufacture, but he makes them himself. This guy's a 
non-indigenous person. He's a European man who lives in Colombia, who has spent decades down there, living down there, raised, raised a child and a family down there in the jungles uh, near Leticia, Colombia, and makes exquisite tools in the field, out in the wilderness, with next to no modern gear. That's speaking volumes about his craft blacksmiths who have very simple setups that don't have power hammers, don't have uh, welding equipment, don't have uh, propane gas stoves or in, uh, what are they, the, um, oh, geez, they're a copper, a copper rod that electricity goes through and it heats up the steel. I can't remember the actual term. Somebody's going to probably email us and correct me on it. But whoever it may be, whatever it may be, the blacksmiths are using coal forges or coke forges that they hand crank themselves. You look at the Japanese knives that are manufactured. Some of them are beautiful works of art from machines, but then you see those knives that are worth six, seven, hundred, eight hundred dollars, a thousand dollars, three thousand dollars, that are high quality chef knives, and they're being manufactured with Japanese or Chinese style box bellows with coal forges. And they're bringing back the traditions of the bladesmiths of yesteryear. Those knives are more valuable to people because they're handmade with simple tools. And it's the skill of the craftsman that is speaking volumes, not the steel quality, not the uh, handle material, not necessarily the way it's manufactured. It's the art of all of it being put together. <clears throat> and we can do that with bushcraft. That's what bushcraft should be expanding our skills and our craft with our craft and not necessarily the gear we carry doing more with less. The more, you know, the less you carry work smart, not hard. All those kind of catchphrases, they mean something. They mean something just like you, dear listener mean something to me and Rye and everybody else involved with the podcast and us at Canadian bushcraft. All you amazing, beautiful people that support us, whether it's through listening to the podcast, sharing the podcast with your friends, or supporting us over at Patreon. People like Tamar, Angie, Jesse, Alexa, Scott, Kathleen, and many, many more. You beautiful people support us and make us want to do more and do better. And we want to support you back. So come on over to patreon.com slash Canadian Bushcraft. Join the dragonfly nation get some kickbacks in the process and we'll see you with our next episode thank you so much for tuning into this episode it's a shorter one that we've been doing over the last few months but it's a good one in my opinion this was an important conversation i want to open this into a conversation so if you have questions or you have comments or you have your own opinions on this stuff send us an email canadian bushcraft podcast at gmail.com Send us your questions. If you're on Patreon, send us your questions on there. We'll be sure to answer them on the podcast. And we can even revisit this because this is already a revisitation to the conversation on knives. Let's have another revisitation to it. With all, that all said and done, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Hope to see you next week with another one. Take care. Stay safe. Tread softly and all those other beautiful things. Caleb loves you all.